I'm Parker Moss, the Chief Partnership Officer at Genomics England, and you're listening to The G Word. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we hope to share the benefits of genomic medicine with everyone. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, even anger. And there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. We want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. Now, today we're going to be having a discussion about venture capital, venture philanthropy, and philanthropic grant funding in cancer. We're speaking with the Managing Director of Health at Emerson Collective, which is the family office of the Jobs family. It's fabulous to have Reed Jobs join me on the call today. Reed, welcome to the G Word. Parker, it is wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so glad you're joining us from sunny California. And I've been really fascinated to follow your progress uh, which is really focused on cancer research, um, a field that I've also got into. And I can't help noticing that both of us started from kind of non-science training pedigree. I know that you did an arts degree at Stanford. And I know personally how challenging it is to climb the curve and really understand uh, what is happening in the cancer world. But I've heard you speak very eloquently and uh, with great articulation about the challenges of cancer. And I'd just love to hear um, how you've gone about um, climbing that curve and learning this complex and deep and fascinating field. Like so many people who got started in cancer, I was driven by a personal desire to see this problem solved and to see the vanquishing of something that is deeply personal to me. Uh, I know that's something that certainly lives inside of you and many other people and many other listeners too. I actually began working in genomic sequencing labs at Stanford when I was in high school, quite soon after my father initially uh, contracted neuroendocrine pancreatic cancer. I didn't work in a pancreatic cancer lab. I actually worked in a uh, hereditary colon cancer screening lab, which mostly looked at families with uh, Lynch syndrome, HMPCC, very aggressive, very early dominant colon cancer that would, you know, strike people in their 40s and would be extremely traceable within family lineages. So I actually began working in what was at the time cutting edge aluminum machines, which uh, now are a lot more mundane than they were in, you know, 2009. I kept working in labs uh, around at Stanford in high school and in the beginning of college. So I actually have a pretty deep background in genomics, which is why I was really excited to come here and talk to you. Now, you're right. I didn't uh, actually get that degree when I was at Stanford. I was planning on doing pre-med, but when my father passed away, I was a sophomore and I, I didn't take any time off of school. But to be frank, I needed a bit of a break from working on campus very difficult for a couple of years and I needed some time away. Uh, instead, I ended up uh, studying uh, nuclear weapons policy uh, and majoring in that through some of the Stanford security programs and ended up getting a master's in that as well, you know, a little more cheerful. <laughs> but after completing that, I did a lot of introspection and really the thing that I cared about the most and the contribution that I feel the proudest of is, was the work that I had previously done in oncology. And I really 
felt compelled to return to that. Interestingly enough, that was around uh, 2015. And between the interval of when I had taken some time off and decided to return, the entire field had been really upended by the emergence of uh, the first class of drugs of immuno in the immunotherapy space. Uh, that made everyone else a beginner again, just like me, even if they didn't know it. So it was a very fortuitous time to re-enter the entire industry. And that's where I uh, still am today. And I uh, gratefully built a team at Emerson to help me do what we do in terms of uh, nonprofit and for-profit investing. Well, Reid, thanks so much for sharing that with me. Uh, it was really open of you. And I think as we first discussed over a year and a half ago, I, I similarly got into this when my daughter um, um, got neuroblastoma and eventually succumbed to that disease. And I know that the, um, the depth of the passion that comes from kind of living with the cancer pathway and then feeling all of the kind of frustrations um, uh, and, and also the, the challenges of the, the long time frames of getting innovations um, into market through trials and, and uh, with patients. So uh, I think we're, we're driven by similar passions. So I would love to hear how that passion drove you towards Emerson and how it's informing uh, what you're developing at Health in, in Emerson. Please describe uh, the Emerson Collective to us and, and what you're trying to achieve. Emerson's a very interesting organization. So it's based up here in Northern California and we are able to do both foreign nonprofit investing extremely seamlessly. What that really means is that we can look at problems somewhat agnostically and really deploy any kind of tool within that tool shed to, to attack and try to uh, advance progress in whatever space it is that we're dealing with. So historically, the, uh, the organization has worked quite a lot in early education, uh, in immigration reform, in uh, climate, uh, and in social justice. And as you can imagine, you know, some of those tools are really more influential in one area or another. For instance, with immigration, it mostly takes a philanthropic bent. With climate, it's an interesting hybrid of both. And when I began the health team in uh, late 2015, I discovered that it was one of the most optimal uses for both philanthropy and investment, simply because most of the same products that we care to bring into patients as quickly as possible originate in academic labs where the support is philanthropic. I, I see it as much more akin to seed funding, uh, but when you're working with academic labs, you really want to bake that as long as possible in the original lab themselves before you're ready to commercialize it. Uh, my view about what my mission is and what we do is quite simple. It's really just to work with the very best researchers to bring new therapies to patients as quickly as possible. I see our, the outcome that I care about is not a publication, it's not a citation, it's not even the top financial return. It really all has to do with milestones for new therapies, diagnostics to patients, because ultimately that is why I'm into it. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why most people in this space are doing what they're doing. It's to really advance patient care, and that needs to be the North Star. Yeah, Reid, I couldn't agree with you more about the venture of philanthropy and the importance of academia. And uh, uh, something I'd love to discuss and something I've observed is that many of the greatest thinkers um, in academia um, who have very translational intent and really, really want to develop um, therapeutics or diagnostics to get to market are just not necessarily suited to going off and becoming a founder and raising venture funding 
And it's just great to have this um, source of funding that can allow them to stay in academia, uh, but really contribute to patient care. And, and I'm wondering um, if we could talk a little bit about the kind of the phenotype of the academic um, grantee versus the phenotype of the kind of um, private sector founder and, and how, how you think about those two groups and, and appeal to their different requirements as you're, as you're funding them. It's a very interesting question, Parker. So here, you know, I'm here in Silicon Valley where the model for venture capital and for company creation is one of a crusading, you know, iconic founder who will move mountains and who is going to be baked in as the CEO for quite a long time. It's a, it's a model I'm deeply familiar with. <laughs> that is actually, though, not what is usually the case for biotechnology companies. Uh, in a lot of cases, you have a scientific founder who's an academic who may or may not want to leave that post. But if they do want to join a company, more often than not, they are really well suited to be a chief medical officer, a chief scientific officer. You kind of want to disaggregate the managerial work of running a company from the science that they're the best in the world at doing. And you sort of want to enable them and empower them to really only focus on delivering clinical milestones. So instead of having a founder CEO, oftentimes you need a CEO who's going to run the, you know, run a young company, but may not be the scientific founder themselves. Moreover, a lot of the companies we deal with will cycle through different CEOs based on the clinical trial that they're designing towards. So there are phase one specialists, there are phase two specialists, so oftentimes the initial CEO may not be the one that actually takes the drug into the clinic 10 years down the road. Uh, it's really my firm belief that the best case scenario is to involve academic founders as much as possible in these companies, if that is the, you know, of course, if that is what they desire to do. Yeah, I love that. So um, I remember when we uh, first spoke, something I was really interested by and, and really impressed by from kind of intellectual rigor perspectives. I remember you said that you de-identified the grant applications you look at. It seems like you're trying to kind of um, reduce the subjectivity and the kind of the bias and the cult of personality of well-known key opinion leaders, um, which uh, on one hand seems like a great thing to do. But of course, the real challenge of seed investing, and it feels almost like seed investing that you're talking about here, is picking a team uh, or an individual that can really drive execution. Um, and if you take away that kind of knowledge of their track record in publishing in academia, how do you pick? How do you pick a, a successful scientist in academia who, who is likely to go on and be successful? And the reason I'm asking you this is I'm really hoping that we can find some great academics over in the UK uh, that could engage with Emerson. And I'd, I'd love them to also hear uh, your response to this question. So, well, first of all, we've actually had some grant programs with CRUK and with uh, Oxford for several years now, and you and there are world class academics in the UK. So there's there's nothing that they need to that the UK needs to improve. It is a world leader. My view on this is really to meet the science where it is primarily. I believe that the best companies, the best returns, the most exciting work one that is downstream of the best science. So. My team and I try to be extremely focused on really honestly answering the question, is this the most interesting problem scientifically? And the market analysis comes far later. So for instance, 
we have a long-term thesis on there being a real interesting therapeutic index in metabolomic pathways. Historically, drugs there have not really worked well. I, we think that that is really because there is a gap in our understanding of the basic biology, and that probably is going to need a lot of long-term academic funding with an unclear path to commercialization. However, given how important uh, a lot of these metabolic pathways are, we believe that that is a worthwhile use of resources, even if the path to commercialization is opaque. That is totally acceptable because that is where the field is. On the other hand, a lot of uh, new generation immunotherapy plays are much closer to being in the clinic because development has been really accelerated over the past couple of years, and it makes a lot more sense to make companies in that space than it might be to write incremental grants. So we just try to be extremely orthodox about where the whole field is and what is really going to take to get it into people in, in the best way possible. And that could be a long timeline. So that's just number one. Number two, uh, to get to the anonymization point, I also feel very strongly that we cannot be biased by someone's position in an academic organization nor their track record, because in some ways that discriminates against younger investigators who may have brilliant ideas, but haven't yet had the time to establish a track record. If you look historically, a lot of the best breakthroughs come from people who tend to be on the younger side in their careers, not necessarily the older. The other point here is that uh, while we do operate a bit in the UK, we mostly operate here domestically in the US. And the NIH and NCI, while wonderful and critical funding organizations, are a little more on the conservative side. And the peak decade for receiving grant funding is between 55 and 65. Uh, that is, you know, we would not be anywhere without the NCI or NIH. But given that that already exists, we see our role as being a little bit more bold, flexible, and adventurous. I mean, that is a really distinctive investment strategy. And I think you're right. It absolutely fills a critical gap in capturing these kind of young rock star PIs, if you can find them, is is absolutely the key. I was very heartened to hear what you said about um, CRUK. I'm on the horizon board of CRUK, which is the part of the, the organization that, um, that, that it invests the money that is raised um, philanthropically in in PIs, and I'm glad to hear that you've worked with them, and I'd love to speak offline about some of the projects you're doing together, because I agree with you, there's some really, really wonderful scientists coming out of that field. Okay, let's maybe kind of flip polarity and speak on the other side. So we've talked a bit about philanthropy. Um, what are you looking for um, on the more kind of venture side uh, in, in seed and presumably Series A companies as well? Certainly. Though, let me just mention one more thing about the interface between our philanthropy and our venture work. It's also, it's really important for me that what we do is very transparent and comes from a pure place. So our grants have no strings attached. We do not have any licensing or royalty rights. We believe that uh, we want to establish a relationship with researchers and they need to know that we have an interest and capability to commercialize. However, it is incumbent on myself and our team to prove our worth and to be the first port of call if someone wants to commercialize something that we've supported. And if they don't, that is on that is our fault. That is on us. It is not on the researcher at all. So it is totally no strings attached. And we would love to talk to people who we support about commercialization, but there is no formal obligation to do so. Additionally, and on the other hand, 
when we have to, you know, look at deals in the venture space, it has to be able to justify a scalable return because it's not philanthropy. It is venture capital. And at this, by the same measure, if it is unable to scale, it's not ever going to realistically get into people. So it isn't a viable vehicle to really change people's lives. I think this is an absolutely fascinating model. The, the anytime I've heard um, anything like that on, on the grant side is really with, with DARPA. And I'm wondering whether DARPA was part of the inspiration for your, your uh, funding mechanism. Of course it was. It's fantastic. And I'm, I've also been uh, a little bit involved with some of the ARPA-H discussions in, uh, with the Congress and the current administration uh, to replicate some of that in the healthcare space. I think it's a fascinating and really great use of resources. It really is. And investing very early in that S-curve, um, I think, has proved that so many times. So um, I'm just thrilled to hear you're doing that. All right. Well, let's talk about cancer itself a little bit. Um, and uh, I mean, there's so many areas, particularly with your very broad model. Um, I'd love to start by discussing diagnostics, which um, as a previous investor myself, I so badly wanted to um, invest in, but it is just a really, really challenging profile for for a venture investor, partly because there's such a kind of binary outcome of either it kind of works or it doesn't work, whereas with a the therapeutic, you can kind of exit at um, uh, IND or phase one or phase two. And then even after you get a diagnostic to work, getting it reimbursed is so challenging. And I think that's why diagnostics is a little bit of a market failure. Um, I'd love to hear um, how you see diagnostics, because it's clearly such an important thing for patients and, uh, and whether that's something that you've entertained um, either from a grant perspective granting perspective or in, in the venture world? Diagnostics are going to be a critical piece for reducing cancer mortality. There's no way around that. And there's tons of evidence to support that. Every cancer that has an early diagnostic, whether that's PSA for prostate cancer, mammograms, colonoscopies, you always see a commensurately lower mortality. And of course you would, because you're catching things before they get ridiculously heterogeneous and before they get, uh, you know, really metastatic. So it makes perfect sense that uh, increased diagnostics and uh, in terms of sensitivity and in terms of access will naturally lead downstream to decrease mortality. And for us, that's what it's all about. It's about decreasing cancer mortality. The marketplace for diagnostics, uh, particularly for, his, for liquid biopsies, is difficult because it really needs to be rolled up in a package that's either multi-omic or multi-data center. And there's only really a handful of companies that have the capability and capital to do that. On the other hand, there are some very interesting advances being done in pathology and radiology around picking up micro tumors and micrometastases with AI and actually augmenting that to radiologists and pathologists. So when you put on a, uh, a passive software mechanism to help read to help you know radiology and pathologists read scans it actually increases sensitivity to a greater degree than either one would alone there's a there's an amplification effect so i we've been investing long term in both of those spaces both liquid biopsies and in imaging and i really really believe that it's interestingly less of a biological problem and a lot more of a computational one in terms of increasing our sensitivity and throughput and luckily, that's something that, you know, we as an industry are very, very good at and is, has a reliable track towards scaling. We've also been really long term in uh, multi-omic 
markers, whether that's proteomics, epigenetics, methylatory markers uh, in liquid biopsies to really increase sensitivity. Uh, and we've really been keenly following a lot of the big companies in that space. So I think the marketplace is, it can be challenging, especially if you're looking at it kind of from the outside, but the advances that are happening are completely, you know, real. They're very, very important. And once we're able to get sensitivity and cost down to where they need to be, I'm actually quite excited to see where diagnostics will be five, 10 years from. Well, I, I love all three examples, so liquid biopsy, image classification and diagnostics and multi-omics. Let, let's kind of circle back to those three uh, individually because all of them are, are so important. Um, so liquid biopsy, of course, is discussed a lot in early detection, um, but also in the kind of diagnostic and, and the kind of uh, surveillance post remission pathways for kind of uh, minimal residual disease detection. Um, actually, the UK, as, I, as you know, is, um, is, has launched the largest trial of the grail um, assay, which we're still waiting to see um, the readout from. So we're all thrilled to follow whether that, that particular assay has worked. Um, um, tell us a little bit more about um, liquid biopsy and early detection. And maybe if I'm a little bit more pointed, you know, one of the challenges in, in the kind of early detection thesis, I think is well described by um, you know, the following statistic, which actually Bob Weinberg um, mentioned it in my last podcast with him, where he said that if, if you do an autopsy on 80-year-old men who have died, 80% of them have prostate cancer, uh, but only 4% of actually the white population died of prostate cancer. So is it really a good thing um, um, if we're diagnosing all of those patients early um, and potentially um, you know, delivering you know, chemotherapeutic and invasive um, therapies that, that may may actually do more harm than good. I think it's kind of an interesting counter argument, even though I'm a great believer in early detection. It's a very interesting question. And the over-treatment sort of balance here is not a new phenomenon. It's been particularly relevant with uh, early breast cancer and mastectomies for quite a while now. Right. So uh, this is something that the field has been dealing with for, for decades. I'm just personally of the belief that information is value neutral and more information is not a bad thing and it needs to be contextualized for people because uh, Bob Weimer is entirely right and that is one it's a statistic that kind of blows people's minds that a lot of old men die with completely non-serious but extant prostate cancer uh, and I don't think many people who get diagnosed with prostate cancer realize that that being said I you know someone, it's their personal medical choice and they should have as maximum information to make that choice with their medical professionals. But I think knowing that you have early cancer is always, always really important. What you do with that is very much your decision. But I just think providing people more information is an unambiguously positive thing to do. Yeah, we, we are fully intellectually aligned on that. And one thing I find fascinating is how diverse the response to personal health information is. And it doesn't seem to cut across age or education or ethnic boundaries. I've, I've met many leading professors of genomics, for example, who's, who would say I would never have myself whole genome sequence, which I think is fascinating. I, I, I also share your view, I would rather have more information. But that is one of the very, I think, personal things that we're going to have to figure out as a society how to deal with. Um, but at least let's uh, invest in, in um, creating the optionality around uh, getting that information. Yeah. Completely. One thing I do want to mention that, that you talked about a little bit. So 
right now the grail trial that's going to come out is critical for this whole field yes and really in terms of how you can use this uh as a prospective diagnostic that being said that aside right now monitoring recurrent disease and residual disease is absolutely within the wheelhouse of current technologies whether that's grail or gardens or there's a couple other smaller ones but they're very 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 sensitive towards that and i i actually just don't want to gloss over how important that is because you're not looking for needle in a haystack you already know what needles exist with tumors that you've already treated and biopsied so you can really easily tell if someone's responding to treatment if the if cancer's recurring after treatment and that is a hugely important technology that i hope gets a little bit more disseminated and people who are living with cancer post treatment are going to you know sleep a lot easier knowing that there's going to be technology there to see how they're progressing and if they need to uh, readjust their care i mean you're, you're right Reed. and if we can't detect relapse in the remission population how are we ever going to find cancer in the healthy population it almost feels like the the mrd market needs to kind of lead um and early detection uh should follow but of course early detection will ultimately have a bigger impact on mortality once once we prove it uh, and i i'm also waiting with bated breath uh, hoping that the grail um, trial is successful um and interesting you know the grail trial is a kind of single modal modality um program looking at kind of bisulfite methylation markers um that maybe is a nice lead on to the next point you talked about which is image classification which has typically been done with histology images or radiology images um actionomics england we are investing in a multimodal uh, program where we're uh, for all of our retrospective solid cancer patients, we are integrating um, whole genome sequencing with radiology and with um, and with um, histology images, um, alongside of course the longitudinal clinical data. And what we're really hoping that we will be able to prove and also enable other researchers to prove is that by kind of integrating the kind of spatial and the molecular components of um, of a kind of patient's record into one, we'll have better predictive value of things like response to treatment and prognosis and, and, and diagnosis as well. Um, is that an area that you've explored um, yourself either in, um, in the kind of academic or commercial world? Because we're looking for help in that space. Oh, absolutely. And one of the new areas that my team has been working on is actually in digital health. And what that really means is modernizing the healthcare ecosystem to process data in ways that are much more efficient and much more helpful. Particularly here in the US, the healthcare data e ecosystem is insanely anachronistic. And, you know, unfortunately, there are many people a year who perish because records aren't transferred, allergy notifications aren't made, and really basic uh, aspects of data transfer just do not occur. Now, a lot of this has actually changed during COVID because uh, trials had to become decentralized, care in the home became much more widely accessible and, uh, and sort of culturally appreciated. So how we deal with people's data and clinical records, especially on people's patients' history side, is becoming a lot more fluid, which is incredible for everybody. So we've actually been working with a lot of hospitals to modernize some of their systems, especially around what you were just saying in terms of how have patients like me with perhaps some of my unique comorbidities responded to various treatments? And it's certainly not a, you know, a perfect roadmap, but it can provide a lot more data resolution than anyone would normally know, and certainly more than a one physician would necessarily know. 
So bundling up these data packages can be really interesting, especially when you're dealing with complex diseases and several different comorbidities at the same time, because it's very likely that a single physician may not have seen that particular combination before, but that hospital system has. Well, for any of the academics that you funded that are listening to this, um, we we are providing essentially an open platform. We're really, really an enabling platform for both commercial and academic researchers. And we will have all of this data, but we are looking to bring tools to our research environment to enable exactly that kind of um, resolution and then also um, you know, predictive model generation. So um, any of the researchers that you're working with that are interested in working with our data set, please send them our way because that's that's exactly the space we're, we're looking into. Well, if we can make this work in the U.S. with our ridiculously balkanized healthcare system, the NHS should be a piece of cake. <laughs> I, I've, uh, I, I went to the U.S. for treatment with my daughter, and we have treatment in Sloan Kettering as well as the NHS system. So I've experienced both, um, and uh, I can tell you that there, there are strengths and weaknesses of both systems. And it's it's fascinating, fascinating, and I think endlessly educational to um, to compare the two because uh, there's a lot that we need to learn from each other. Uh, certainly neither one of them is perfect today and actually something you mentioned about um patient records and gathering patient data i think uh, you've encapsulated nicely in this program that i know that you're funding called count me in i'd love to uh, you to tell me a little bit about that because that seems really novel and different absolutely that's a nonprofit that i started with the broad and dana farber several years ago and the notion very simply is to aggregate patient data both genomic and clinical record data uh, and publish it anonymously for the benefit of researchers and patients themselves. Why this really matters is that, uh, unlike probably a lot of your listeners, the vast majority of cancer patients get seen in community settings. They don't go to large hospitals or academic cancer centers. I believe that's only about, in the U.S., 12 to 15 percent of the cancer population. So the vast, vast, vast majority are being seen by private physicians. And none of that data is really shared. However, of course, there's been there's experimentation happening constantly. So if someone has an off-label drug that they attempt on a certain patient and it really works, oftentimes that data is not is siloed and is not really shared with the rest of the patient population. This is expect this is especially salient for rare diseases uh, and rare cancers, which comprise 20% of all cancers, and it, so it's this really long tail, uh, and that's millions of people in the U.S. What this really means is that. Uh, whereas one academic center may only get a handful of rare cancer patients, if you look nationally and try to aggregate patients nationally, you finally do get a, a statistically relevant sample size. So to put a fine point on it, uh, there's a, an angiosarcoma that had several different subvariants. Uh, one was uh, cutaneous and it happened on the scalp. Now, because uh, of course, you know, your scalp gets a lot of UV radiation, someone in Florida, I believe, had the bright notion of trying a off-label immunotherapy because uh, melanoma has such a high mutational signature and has a really, really good response rate to uh, PD-1 blockades. PD1. They attempted this, and luckily enough, this patient uh, had a fantastic response. Now, until we were able to basically get that data out of that little hospital, out of that little provider in Florida, no one in that entire patient uh, ecosystem or the physicians had tried that before or had any data on, you know, basically trying a kind of uh, PD-1 blocker on a scalpel angiosarcoma. And the publication of this data has actually changed the uh, treatment protocol for that particular subtype of cancer. 
that's a especially great example because it's so, you know, it, it kind of works so well, but there's a lot of things like that, that we've been discovering and publishing uh, just for free. That is a beautiful example. And, you know, historically the challenge with Federation, I mean, the technical challenges, but one of the major challenges has been information governance. I presume that with count me in, essentially you're getting participants to consent up front uh, and, and allow that data to be pooled. And that's how you can, um, uh, identify these signals. Is, is that right? Yes. And I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that earlier. Um, in the, in the U S one thing that I really vociferously agree with is that the patient is the ultimate operator of their own data. You own your data and you can do whatever you want with it. Now that isn't always easy, but we try to take as much of that burden away from the patient as possible. So the first thing we do and the principal thing we do is we allow patients themselves to sign up and give us, uh, give us authority to gather either uh, patient records, uh, biopsy samples, or all of the above to anonymize and use in these data sets. Most of these cancer patients are more than happy to pay it forward and you know, donate what they're doing to research. It's just a really difficult thing to do if you're not really familiar with hospital systems or with, uh, you know, with data aggregation. So we really just go to the patients first and empower them to share however much they want with us. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, what we find um, in our cancer population is that we have kind of 97 or 98% consent rates uh, into research programs. People that are sick um, uh, are generally very, very willing to share and feel a sense of community with uh, patients like them and future patients that present like them. And I think that's something uh, really important that we, uh, that, that we uh, made the best advantage of. Um, and I have to say that is one area where I think the NHS and the UK have a natural advantage uh, because we have a unique NHS identifier um, that follows the patient as they travel around different hospitals or move around different parts of the country. Um, so I imagine that um, that would make the longitudinal follow-up that you would have to do with Count Me In kind of easier if you, if you have that. It, it does. Once we have patient consent, we can... Uh... If, if they authorize us, we can actually keep those uh, those accounts active. That's terrific. So how many patients have you got registered in that system today? Over 10,000. Wow, that's getting serious. Um, and I, I believe that um, uh, one of your colleagues told me that that's all an open source platform and, and uh, that's something you can, you can share. Absolutely. It's completely open source. It's a total nonprofit. We would never, you know, nothing is getting commercialized. It is purely... Uh, from patients for researchers and caregivers to healthcare. Great. Okay. Well, this podcast gets global audience, but in particular for UK listeners, anyone who's interested in an open source kind of uh, patients like me type platform, uh, I guess they should reach reach out to the Emerson Collective. Yes, or just uh, uh, visit Count Me In. Count Me In. Okay, I love it. And then going back to the third area, um, so we, you briefly mentioned multi-omics, um, and that's an area that is kind of close to our heart because Genomics England started off very much as a whole genome sequencing kind of DNA-based organization. And that was, you know, we were founded in 2012, and I think people really felt that genotype, phenotype associations were going to cure cancer and, and you know, many other diseases. And we, we, of course, have all now realized that there's a lot more beyond DNA, and we have to understand transcription and translation. Uh, so we are um, actually initially in rare disease, focusing on 
uh, proteomics uh, alongside transcriptomics to see if we can in increase the diagnostic yield of some of the more challenging indications that we still have low yields on through whole genome sequencing. But really, we're yet to explore proteomics in cancer. And I'd love to hear if you've had any experience of that that you think we should be aware of. So we've invested in several companies that have done really interesting proteomic screens and work with a lot of these diagnostic companies that you're talking about. It really offers a very interesting piece of resolution that is missed with uh, just regular bisulfite sequencing. Moreover, it has a lot of interesting non-cancer applications, particularly with infectious diseases, because being able to pick up viral proteins is actually something that is incredibly useful with uh, monitoring early, early infections as we're all in, you know, far too intimately aware of. So that's actually been a very, very interesting piece of technology. Uh, and I think it's gonna have a lot of applications beyond, beyond cancer. Now, in terms of just uh, kind of where multiomics sit within everything that we've been talking about, I think it's a really important piece of the diagnostic puzzle. However, like you, I really began my experience with cancer working in hardcore genomics labs. And the idea was exactly like you said, we're going to sequence everyone at infinitum, then we're going to find a targeted therapy and, you know, cancer problem solved. And naturally, we've just found out because of really complex heterogeneity and recurrence that almost always targeted therapy alone is insufficient to really drive long-term responses. It may drive some short-term responses, but if you usually those end in recurrence and something that is, uh, you know, that really evades whatever line of therapy that you have. My personal view is that decreasing cancer mortality in the future is mainly going to be driven by a sort of triumvirate of early detection, some targeted therapy, and really, really sophisticated next generation immunotherapy. And it's for that last piece that the proteomics really, really matter because figuring out the microenvironment around tumors and the state of the immune system that exists when you first diagnose cancer is critical to determining what someone's immunotherapy uh, trajectory is gonna look like and nothing else can really capture that. So the proteomics are a really critical part of that uh, as well as for target therapy when necessary. You know, I'm, you know, as, as much as I uh, love immunotherapy, I probably am most excited right now about seeing trials uh, for some KRAS analogs that are happening in Amgen and BMS and some other big pharmaceutical companies, just because it's such a pervasive oncogene that if we're able to get some coverage over it, that is a tremendous leap forward. Yeah, it really is exciting to see progress in KRAS and actually RAS itself, which has been just such a kind of a wall and a barrier for so many years now. I, I saw some fascinating things published by the Broad recently that suggest that even, yeah. even uh, RAS is being um, understood structurally and, and potential binding pockets there. So I, I also entirely agree with what you say about the protein. I mean, ultimately drugs bind to proteins. Uh, so it is uh, very, very important that we understand that. But it, it gives us this challenge, doesn't it? Because I mean, the germline is fixed once you sequence that. Um, somatic sequencing, unfortunately, changes into an intratumorally, um, but then it gets so much more complicated with transcriptomics because that is you know, tissue specific and then proteomics is not only just tissue specific, but it changes rapidly during the day over time temporarily. So we're adding all of these degrees of freedom. 
I guess what I'm, I'm getting towards is, do you ever see these technologies really being in the clinic, or do you think this is going to um, be a research tool for a lot longer? It has not gotten to the clinic as quickly as I've wanted to, but I, you know, given this sort of bundling approaches and strategies that a lot of the larger sequencing companies are are employing, I would I would expect that you're going to see some clinical uh, applications being being attempted in the next five years. Yeah, I'm, I'm here hoping to, and uh, I'm, uh, I, I will have a close look at your portfolio to see what you've invested in, because I'm sure you've got your finger on the pulse, and that a lot of it is happening at nearby to you in in, um, in California. Um, so you, you mentioned immunotherapy, and and you kind of made a, a, a bit of an oblique reference to COVID just now. Uh, so we're hearing more and more discussions of, uh, I think, what what um, in in the kind of public discourse is being called the cancer vaccine is really more of a therapeutic vaccine. Um, I think a lot of people are most excited about it in the CNS and brain for glioblastoma. Um, is that a space you're looking at? Do you feel that we're ready for prime time yet? Fascinating question. It's extremely topical. To be totally honest with you, my team is in the midst of a deep landscape right now on exactly that space. It's one that uh, I was really, really keen on investing in when I first started because it is it makes total sense. It would be, you know, a complete game changer that would revolutionize the entire industry. Uh, and it just has never worked. So it's a very, very tantalizing problem. Now, be, we never really found any delivery mechanism that would satisfy any kind of safety, uh, you know, regime that you need to go through at all. So we never ended up executing on any uh, major grants or investments there. We're returning to it now because the promise is, you know, just as bright as it, uh, at the potential is just as interesting as it was when we first began. And we think that there may be uh, really big advancements coming down the road with delivery, probably driven from next generation gene editing therapies that could be repurposed uh, for the cancer vaccination space. Now, I, I don't want to make any uh you know, any proclamations on that yet, because to be honest, uh, we're still in the midst of really seeing what the what the entire landscape looks like. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you're looking at that. And that might be a perfect place for your kind of uh, mixed model of um, granting and and uh, venture, because I mean, finding the right neoantigen, I think, is still very much an academic problem. But even once you find the right uh, neoantigen from the right neoepitope, then the next challenge is the, the more operational thing of how do you really get fast turnaround time to get you know something autologous from the patient to turn it around into a into a t-cell therapy and get it back into the patient quickly enough um you know to to uh, essentially treat that patient particularly in brain where you don't have a long time to hang around and that, and that feels like something the private sector should be able to deliver upon especially inspired by the uh, amazing pace uh, that the, the huge COVID investment has kind of delivered for all of us yeah, I would really hope to see um, to see some big leaps and bounds happening in the next couple of years. Okay, so you've mentioned kind of three areas of uh, technology, um, really early detection, liquid biopsy, imaging classification, and kind of multi-omics that are exciting to you. Um, is there anything else that has uh, kind of captured your imagination that, and that um, is kind of uh, keeping you up at night uh, reading papers? Well, we um, have started several companies lately in uh, the epigenetic gene editing space. Uh, it's just one that we've been very keen on because we were we've been working quite a lot with some of the uh, early pioneers at CRISPR uh, and the associated technologies there. We aren't sure if the 
safety profile of that is really at a place where it's going to be available in humans yet. However, if you look at the human epigenome, you have far fewer uh, nodes that you may need to perturb, and you actually have a very different amount of phenotypic responses that you can uh, elicit than you have just with regular you know, gene mm -hmm. editing. So there's some early, uh, really, really, really early science happening there that I find incredibly exciting because it is just a little bit more sophisticated view on how you could apply that technology. So that's one area that we're getting very, very uh, deep in and we're placing some long-term bets. So this Alongside is, this is that, sort of a in vivo CRISPR, but of the epigenome where I presume there's less kind of off-target yep. risk. Is, that's what you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah, it's that that's one area that we just uh, have really jumped into with both feet and I think makes a lot of sense, too. So I think we may see that sooner than we would uh, just with some CRISPR editing technologies. Beyond that, there's quite a lot that we're looking at in the metabolism space, like I mentioned in the beginning, especially around cytokines and synthetic cytokines that are going to kind of do immune priming for cold tumors to really make them something that could be much more amenable to immunotherapy. So there's quite a lot that's actually happening there that is really, really promising and, you know, incredibly sophisticated chemically, but makes a lot of like sense logically uh, you know, when you when you kind of run out what that will look like in, in the clinic. So some of those uh, two things are two areas that I'd say we're very excited about. But uh, look, I the best part of my life is I can travel around and learn about incredible new discoveries and. I think we're kind of constantly being surprised by mysteries that people are unraveling to us. And it is beautiful, isn't it, seeing these two curves, the technology curve and the kind of biological understanding curve coming together uh, so constructively. You can kind of feel the pace of change uh, ramping every single month. Don't you? Undoubtedly. And uh, the next, I think, 10, 15 years are going to be really really transformative to uh to a lot of our gener a lot of our understandings of, of really how we're going to eliminate mortality in a lot of these diseases yeah i'm i'm sharing your sense of optimism so i really enjoyed that um i really hope that you'll come and visit us when you're next over in the uk and i'm very grateful for your time with us today i'd love to end with just one uh question that i've asked some of our previous listeners uh which is i'd love to hear who you think would be the most interesting person for me to go and speak to next uh, on on the g word Oof, great question. Uh, I would just have to say right now, I would be fascinated to hear what Monica Bertinoli, the new NCI director, is planning on doing with her organization. Uh, I know I've met her several times. She's an incredibly thoughtful, really warm person who I thought was an inspired choice. She's the first woman to lead the NCI. And I just think it's in a really, really interesting place with ARPA-H coming in with some leadership turnover. And I would be really keen to find out what her priorities are and what she's thinking about doing with that really important organization. I'm thrilled you suggested that because uh, when I interviewed Harold Obamas a few months ago, he also suggested I spoke to the new director of the NCI, but it hadn't been announced at that stage. So uh, this is a this is a great continuity play from him. Uh, Monica will be getting my call. Reed, with that, I just am so grateful for your time today. Um, and that's all from this episode. So thank you to all of our listeners uh, to listening to this discussion uh, about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes into the mainstream um, in healthcare and into society. 
If you've got any views on these topics or have a person in mind that you'd like us to interview, please do write to us at podcast.channelsingland.co.uk. And most of all, Reid, I'm just really grateful for your support and thanks for sharing a bit of your afternoon with us today. My pleasure.